We are going to be reading Romans 8, 1 through 8 this morning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brett. Morning, Arcadia. Thank you very much for being here. Um, Trey, I saw you in here earlier. Oh, yeah, there you are. Um, You mentioned Spurgeon. You know, there's a guy named Spurgeon at place for the Minnesota Wild. Is that the same Spurgeon that you're talking about? No? Last Puritan on a hockey, on a hockey team. Okay, all right. Anyway, uh, that was actually a, a joy to listen to somebody that fired up about um, kingdom work. And uh, so we are blessed to have somebody like Trey leading our our students and young adults here. So uh, be praying for him and just be thankful that we have him here. Uh, if you if you are new here, welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as well, uh, just want to mention that um, the reason we read out of Romans chapter 8 is because we are in the midst of a seven-week series going through that very chapter of Scripture. And what I want to do today uh, during this message is review where we've been. We've done one week uh, and then talk about these first eight verses uh, in depth uh, as a preparation also for what we're going to do next week. And I would encourage you, encourage you to have... Bibles open in front of you. Uh, We ask you to do that every week and explain how important it is that you have Scripture open in front of you with the text that we're reading. Uh, It's important every week, but but never as important as when we're in a series like this where we are literally going verse by verse, and I keep asking you to refer back to a verse that has been read so that you can see what we are talking about in the comments uh, that we are making. So we're in Romans chapter 8, and if you're wondering where that is, you can look in the... um, uh, table of contents or on your phone, you can, you can look it up very easily or uh, just know that it's nestled very conveniently between Romans chapter 7 and chapter 9, so you can find it that way as well. Um, one, of the, one of the great New Testament scholars of our time, a guy named Douglas Moo, that's his real name, he writes this, Romans 8 is famous for its focus on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times in Romans chapter 8. So if you do a word bubble, I don't know, I, I didn't know what it was, I just knew, I didn't know how to find it, but you do a word bubble on Romans chapter 8, I know it may be a little bit hard to see, but look at, look at the word spirit. It is the dominant word in Romans chapter 8. That alone should tell us something. God's pretty important. Of course, it is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Christ is important. That's good too. And then flesh is also important. So we're going to talk a lot about Uh, the flesh today especially, and in the rest of this series as well. So it's about the Holy Spirit. And we started this series last week. It's called Life in the Spirit. And the overarching theme of this chapter in Scripture, the overarching theme of this chapter is twofold. Number one, it is the assurance, the absolute security of eternal salvation For those who believe in Jesus, but that is made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit had to work in your life prior to you coming to Jesus for you to be pointed towards Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is involved in your salvation by pointing you to who Jesus Christ is. So that's the first thing. But that's not the end of the Spirit's job. The job points you to Jesus. He is part of your salvation. He is an important key to your salvation. But then also... Once you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and so then you are to live your life 
by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in you. And then that becomes the sort of the challenge for the rest of this chapter is not only assuring us of our salvation in Christ because of the Holy Spirit, but also accessing the Holy Spirit and understanding the Holy Spirit is with us and that the Holy Spirit has power that we don't have in order to live in a way that follows Christ as best as we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's the assurance of the eternal salvation that the Spirit points us to and then it's also living by the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And again, talking about the security of our salvation, Romans 8 starts with this verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with this verse, which we'll look at in six weeks. There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Perfect bookends for this chapter that gives us the assurance of our salvation if you are in Christ. So last week we got sort of a running start on Romans chapter 8 by setting the context of this study uh, by looking at the last part of chapter 7. The Apostle Paul writes insightfully in chapter 7 about this challenging and often maddening internal battle that every person has. Uh, a, A person who is in Christ, certainly people who don't know Jesus and don't have access to the Holy Spirit, every person has this maddening internal battle. It's, it's that we know what's right and wrong. We know the difference between right and wrong. We understand, even if we're the ones that have constructed in our own mind, absence of God, absent of, of, of the Bible, absent of any religion or philosophy, we still construct in our own mind some moral code of what is right and wrong, and the challenge is that we can never live up to it. Whether it's the Mosaic Law, the, whatever, whatever law you've decided for your life, how, whatever standard that you have, we can't live up to it. We, we, we just can't seem to do all the time what we know we should do. And this is an internal battle that drives us all crazy. We can't seem to overcome, and here's that word flesh, our fleshly, contrary to God desires. By the way, let me take a little, I think, necessary side trip. Um, there are actually two versions or two manifestations of the flesh that is talked about in the New Testament. There's one manifestation that is given toward license or toward sin. And that's when Paul talks about uh, the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And he says the deeds of the flesh are, are these. Sexual immorality and lying and gossiping and slander and, and all of these different things. There's a huge list of them. And, and he says, um, by which these people cannot possibly have eternal life if they continue to live in those deeds of the flesh. That's one manifestation of the flesh. Another manifestation of the flesh, though, is this idea that people have and that I used to have that I can, and even sometimes it creeps in now, even though I know Christ, it's this idea that I can just... I can pull myself up by my own moral bootstraps, my own moral will. I can do it. I can resist temptation all on my own. That's another manifestation of the flesh that actually goes nowhere. And Paul speaks to both of those kinds of fleshes throughout all of his writings in the New Testament. Here's how Ray Ortland describes it, the author Ray Ortland. He says, you may be a fleshly playboy or a fleshly Pharisee, but it is the same effort and consequence. And and here's the thing, living in the flesh, either way, living in the flesh is so exhausting, and either way it results in death. It's exhausting to have to live by your own power to try to do what's right. It's also exhausting to just give in to sin all the time. That is exhausting as well too. And both of those things, Paul would say, end in death. And so there's this battle in chapter 7, between the law or some moral code and our flesh. And far too often our flesh wins. And because of the flesh wins, our flesh will kill us. So at the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul describing his struggle. Understand, even the Apostle Paul has this struggle. So many people say, he's the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, the greatest church plan. He couldn't possibly have had this struggle. Yes, he did. He's talking autobiographically here just like everybody else. And so he cries out. And he cries out at the end of chapter 7 in a way that every one of us should cry out because it's simply the truth of our condition and the joy of our salvation if you are in Christ. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's the truth of our condition. We are sinners separated from God. Wretched man that I am. And there's the joy of our salvation. It is Jesus who delivers us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that was last week. This week we begin this now six-week journey looking at how this salvation by the power of, uh, of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in us and because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, how that manifests, manifests itself in us, those who know Christ, in contrast to a life without the Spirit. If you look at chapter 7, it's really a life without the Spirit that is, that is struggling with this. And those of us who have access to the Spirit can also still struggle to this with this because we haven't stirred up the Spirit that, who is already in us. We'll get to that towards the end. So this series is a weekly proclamation of the splendid and joyous good news for all who have come or who will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's get started. Let me reread verses 1 through 4, and we'll unpack those first. Paul writes, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So notice that verse 1 begins with the word therefore. That means Paul is drawing a conclusion based on things that he's already written in the past. And there's two things he's drawing a conclusion on. One of them goes all the way back to chapter 5 in Romans. In chapter 5, Paul explains that because of the sin of Adam, that would be the original sin that is that is uh, told about in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, because of that original sin in Adam, every person is born into sin. When you and I are conceived, the Bible even says, when we're conceived, we are conceived in the nature of sin. We, we are not born tabula rasa. We are not born waiting to see whether or not we are going to be holy or wicked. We are born into sin. That is our nature, which means that we are already born into eternal condemnation. And we need this external intervention by Jesus in order to save us from that condition in our life. But now, he says in chapter 5... The new Adam, the perfect Adam in Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam, the perfect Adam. He's come, and now for those who are in Christ because of his sacrifice and his resurrection, there is now no condemnation for those who have embraced Jesus. And then the second thing is he's referring back to the end of chapter 7, which we talked about last week. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who have embraced Jesus as their Savior, they know that they are secured away from any sort of divine condemnation, divine conviction, or divine sentence. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the essence of the good news that you and I have if you are in Christ. That even though we are born into this condemnation, if we've accepted Jesus into our lives, we now don't have to suffer that condemnation anymore. And as a result, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And so then Paul expands on how this is true and that this truth is rooted in the indwelling work of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit both saves and guides. And in verse 2, Paul tells us that in Christ a new law, the law of the Holy Spirit in us, is with us now. This is again a a clear reference back to the battle that we have in chapter 7. By the way, this idea of flesh um, I, I want to, somebody, I read some stuff this last week that I think helped a little bit. Um, what Paul is really talking about there is this idea of a sinful status quo. The, the flesh is this desire that we have in order to, to follow the pleasures that are ungodly, the pleasures of this world that would be ungodly, uh, the desire to follow things that are contrary to what God would have for us that would be best for us. It's the sinful status quo. It's not that our bodies are bad, it's that we have this desire to go towards um, whatever it is that God says we shouldn't go toward. And, and, I, and I resonated with that because I didn't come to Christ until I was 27 years old. And so I was living under that sinful status quo, 
And I thought I was fine. I thought there, there, there's really, you know, I, I figured one of the reasons was because I kept adjusting my moral code so that it fit my behavior, which is what a lot of people do. But I figured I was fine. But I was giving myself to this sinful status quo. Your body isn't necessarily bad. God gave you this body. It is deteriorating because of sin. Can I get an amen? Okay, it is deteriorating because of that. This body is not what we will be given for eternity, but it's still God and Jesus and the Bible, they all have a high view of the body because that's been given to us as a temple for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is unlike the law in that when we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we actually have the power to say no to sin. Let me explain what I'm talking about there, referencing what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus a few years later after he wrote Romans. In, in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, it's been interesting over my 35 years or 40 years as a Christian to hear how people have tried to understand that verse. You know, see... See, you wine drinkers, okay? I'm so glad I drink vodka or beer because I'm not being condemned by Paul. Okay, no, you're missing the point. Wine is a metaphor or an image for anything in this world that we would give ourselves to, be enslaved to, in other words, live our lives under the influence of rather than the Holy Spirit. So it could be power, it could be status, it could be education, it could be vocation, it could be wealth, it could be whatever, whatever it is. And the interesting thing about that is that these are mostly things that you could live under the influence of that aren't bad anyway. It's just that you've allowed them too much influence in your life. Now, if it's meth, yes, that's bad, I will say that. But all these other things, it's just that you've allowed them to go too far. He says, do not allow... One glass of wine to become four glasses of wine because then you will live your life under the influence of the intoxication of the wine rather than under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's where this truth lies. We need to live under the guidance, influence, and into the will of the Holy Spirit of God. Really important. Um, this is also expanded on, I think, um, by the great reformer Martin Luther centuries ago where he talked about how the Bible, Scripture, these 66 books are actually divided into sort of like four major chapters. And chapter one would be Genesis 1 to 2, where he says the nature, the condition of humanity is that we are not sinful, but we had the ability to sin. Not sinful, but we had the ability to sin. Then Genesis 3 happens, we sin. So from Genesis 3 until the resurrection of Jesus Christ... The nature of humanity was sinful, fallen, corrupt, and we had no ability not to sin. Paul has said, the law, the law can't prevent you from sinning. The law actually manifests in you a desire to sin. So we had no ability, we were sinful and had no ability not to sin. But then Jesus rose and the Holy Spirit came and fills his people. And so now... We are still sinful in our nature. We are still corrupt, but now we have access to a power that is better than anything in this world to be able to help us to not sin. We have the ability to tamp down sin in our lives. And then finally, that's from the resurrection of Jesus to Revelation 20. And then finally, Revelation 21 and 22, when the new Jerusalem comes, we will no longer be inherently sinful. Our nature will no longer be sinful. We will be renewed. We will be given these new eternal bodies that are perfect and holy and righteous. And thankfully, we will not have the ability any longer to sin. And that's where we live in eternity with God. That's a beautiful thing. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then verses 3 and 4 are just such great news. The Mosaic law can't save us from the law of sin and death. But God has done what the law could not do. God fulfilled the law for us by sending his son to live a perfect life and then be sacrificed on the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb as an atonement for our sin. Jesus condemned sin so that those who are in him are not condemned. That's the status that we live in as believers in Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit who guides us not only into that salvation by revealing the truth of Jesus to us, but then also walks with us so that we may live by the Spirit and actually be followers of Jesus. So you look at this, these verses, 3 and 4, 
tell us that each person of the Trinity all do their part in our salvation. God the Father sent the Son. Jesus the Son lived and went to the cross and was raised three days later, paying the debt for our sin and giving us eternal life. And then it is the Holy Spirit who stirs our hearts, redeems our minds, dwells within us, and teaches us as we live our lives in Christ. And so as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and our claim to know Jesus, you and I stand blameless and righteous before God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us so that we can then discern the godly from the ungodly. Now understand, what the Holy Spirit has done and continues to do in our life gives us security about our salvation and a hope that will never fail us. There is a difference, I say this all the time, there is a difference between the biblical hope of Jesus Christ in our lives and worldly hope. Worldly hope is, you know, I, I hope I get the job, but I may not. I hope, what, here, here you go, I got one for you right now. I know some of you were very worried a few days ago when the Suns lost that first game, and, and now they came back and they won three straight, and you're like, okay, it's better, it's still on. I am just trying to protect your heart. The curse is real. They're not going to win it. This is a worldly hope that you are investing your life in. Yeah, I know. I know. But KD, I know, I know. I understand. Hey, look, even if the Suns win the championship, it's not as good as Jesus and his hope. We need to understand that. Uh, There's some really mediocre amens in the midst of that. Okay, so... (laughs) Really, really good news. So then, look at verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul just kind of pounds away, saying essentially the same thing over and over, but with a little twist and a little bit differently. He repeats himself, but he does it because this is so important. And first of all, let me say that this language of set on, the mind set on, another way to say it, another way to interpret it, in other biblical translations, if you look at the original language, another way to say it is the mind that is governed by the mind that is directed by, and I think that's a helpful insight. So verse 5 says that whatever it is that we dwell on, that we think about, that we linger over, that becomes the patterns of our life. So Paul writes to the Philippians a few years later, the church in Philippi, in chapter 4, verses uh, 8 and 9. And let me, let me just tell you something. Um, one of the things I like about especially uh, this series in Romans chapter 8 is because I get to reference so many other scriptures and I know that can be hard to follow sometimes, but, but here's why I do it. One of the most important principles of interpreting Scripture and understanding the meaning of Scripture is to use other Scripture to interpret it. Not my feelings, not my insight, not my scholarship, but use other Scripture to interpret that Scripture. So think about what Paul says when he says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. In verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 4, he writes, Finally, beloved... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your mind on these things. Have your mind governed by these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, because that's what I do, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now now this, this verse, last 15 years, I've spent a lot of time uh, reading and studying about how the brain works. I just sort of, I don't know how, but I, got gra- I gravitated towards that, reading a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, and, and, t- and, and learning about how the brain works and learning a lot about neural pathways, which I know many of you also know about, and, and this idea of dopamine and how, and how when we do something that's pleasurable to us, we get a little rush of dopamine, like when, when your phone uh, beeps and you got a text message. Believe it or not, you get a little shot of dopamine. And, and so we like the dopamine because it feels good. But the problem with the dopamine is that it starts to build these trenches that are larger and larger and larger that continue to demand even more and more dopamine. And that's how we become addicts. That's, that's a problem. Uh, in studying this stuff and then looking at Philippians 4, 8, and 9, it's my contention 
that 2,100 years ago, before Paul had any access to neuroscience, okay, before he had any access to that, by the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to us about how to combat these negative neural pathways that we find ourselves in. You see, when somebody is addicted to something, we think, well, we just got to tell them to stop. Just stop it. Just stop it. And it doesn't work, right? The reason is because as you're trying to close down those bad neural pathways, you actually have to open up new ones because the dopamine's got to go somewhere and you got to have some dopamine. And so you got to figure out how to open up these new neural pathways. Paul says you got to focus on these godly things. I have a friend, years and years ago, I had a friend in the late 80s, okay, he was addicted to cocaine, and he had, every year, he was spending, and, and I know this doesn't sound like, this is like pocket change today, but back then it was a lot of money. He was spending $30,000 a year on cocaine, okay? And $30,000 a year in the late 80s was a lot of money, okay? We're buying tacos for that now. Anyway, so, <laughs> so he's spending all this money, and he, and he stops cocaine, but he actually just naturally had to move into something else that would give him this dopamine rush. You know what he moved into? Golf. He literally had to play golf two or three times a week. Now, I would argue that depending on where he was playing, he was spending as much on golf as he was on cocaine. He tried to play it in Cano as much as he could because the fees were lower there. But, but at any rate, and, and it's funny because when I would talk to his wife, she'd say, look, I don't care. Golf is way better than the cocaine thing. But you see how that worked. And he was literally, all he wanted to do was talk about golf. He wanted to do golf. And we couldn't be friends anymore because I don't like golf. But I agree, it's better than cocaine. It's better than cocaine, but that's that whole idea of these neural pathways. Paul is saying, this is where you need to be focused. In verse 6, look at the consequences of what we set our minds on. And I understand, sin can be fun. Amen, yeah. No amens on that? Okay. Um, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say all the time, if you're not having fun when you sin, then you're not sinning correctly. Now, sin may be fun for a moment. Sin may be fun for a season even, but in the end it leads to destruction. In the end it leads to depression. In the end it leads to all kinds of problems. It's destructive in the long term. And, and again, I would just encourage you to get this book, Anna Lemke's book, uh, Dopamine Nation, because she says that even this idea of, of getting pleasure all the time ends up being destructive to you. You need to be really careful of this stuff. Sin brings about death. But by living in the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit, we have life and peace. And as Paul writes in Philippians, the peace of God is a peace that transcends all understanding. I have no idea why things are falling apart all around me, but I have peace. It means that even when our life circumstances are hair on fire bad, we can have peace in the midst of that. He's got this. God's got this. So Paul explains the idea of sin leading to death and the Spirit leading to life. He says the same thing, but differently in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he writes this, do not be deceived. Now the, uh, that verb, deceive there, is actually in the first person, so really it should be translated, do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And then verse 7, you see how important the mind is to Paul and to God and to the Bible? You know, we, we talk so much about the heart, and, and it is, the heart is important, but really it's the heart where we get deceived. It's our affections that deceive us. We, we need to filter what we feel and what our affections are. We need to filter that through the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Again, our founding pastor, Tom, he was famous for saying, what we know trumps what we feel. Jeremiah 17.9, the prophet writes this, our hearts and wicked and deceptive above all things, no one can understand this. I'm going to do what feels right, and then I seem to get into trouble. Numbers 15, 38 and 39, God says, speak to the people of Israel, my people, and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout all generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. 
And these tassels and this cord shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, here you go, and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. See there, God is saying, your problem is your heart. Your problem is your eyes. You need to be reminded of who I am. It's Philippians chapter 4. God is saying, set your mind on these things, who I am and my commandments. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing through your mind, test your feelings through your mind and through the word of God, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's true, our hearts need to be converted. They need to be redeemed by Christ, but it is our mind that is the core of truth. One of the songs that we already sang here this morning, the lyrics were, God, don't let my feelings form me, but rather let your truth be the one be, be what forms me. It is the mind that the Holy Spirit and the gospel treat as the key to life with God. The mind must be set on God, governed by the Holy Spirit, and it's the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit that empowers that in us, for us. And then verse 8, this is, this is really a key to, to a lot of stuff. Verse 8 says that we need to please God, but we can't please God if we don't trust God. Trusting God is integral to pleasing God. When we set our minds on the flesh, on, on our idols and on our false gods, when we set our minds on the desires that we have that are contrary to God, it is an issue of faith. It is an issue of trust. Who or what are we trusting? We've talked about this a lot in recent months, especially in Isaiah 40 through 55. Are we trusting the things of this world that seem to never promise the fulfillment that they say they can give us and never deliver? False gods never fail to fail. Um, John Piper has said many times that false gods, idols, the things that we pursue that are, that are not of God, they always seem to work at first. But then after a while, we realize that it's leading us towards destruction. False gods never fail to fail. And we end up in sin. We end up missing the mark. Think of it this way. When we sin, when I sin, when I sin, when I commit a sin, it's actually a momentary unbelief in God. In that moment, I am saying, I don't believe, God, that what you have for me is better than what I'm about to do. I don't believe right now that you can provide or protect me better than what I'm about to do. It's momentary unbelief in what the gospel can do in your life, and it is not following the Holy Spirit. So as we wrap, I want to consider and ponder and think about this repetitious point that Paul makes in verses 5 through 8. If we live by, walk in, and set our minds on either the flesh or the spirit... That's going to determine where we end up. When we walk and live and set our minds on the Spirit, that is when we are trusting God, which leads to pleasing God, and it gives us peace. But can we all just acknowledge that that's a lot easier to say than it is to do? Isn't it easier to, to just say that and to point fingers and to point fingers than it is to actually do that? So how do we walk, live, and set our minds on the Spirit of God so that we live in the wisdom of the Spirit's influence, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, it takes discipline. It takes discipline. Um, in pondering this, I was reminded of a very old, a very common, but extremely effective illustration that our founding pastor Tom used to wheel out now and then, and I'm going to wheel it out today. First of all, it's simply a biblical fact. It's a fact of God that when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You and I have access to the Spirit of God every single day. He's in there. But we often don't do it. We often don't do it. So I'm sure that almost everybody in this room, if not everybody, at some point in your life, you have gotten out an ice-cold glass and you've poured, it with, poured into it ice-cold milk. And then you've gotten out the the Hershey's bottle of that syrup, that chocolate syrup, and you've poured the syrup into the milk, right? You know, okay, chocolate, you're going to make chocolate. You don't want to go to Circle K. You're just going to make some chocolate milk at home, okay? But you notice that when you pour in that, that, that syrup, the syrup goes all the way to the bottom and it just sits there. So what do you have to do? You got to stir it up. Otherwise, you, you, you drink it and it's, like, it's, it's just still milk. 
There's, there's no chocolate in it. And you're, you're, how do I get that chocolatey goodness in me? Unless you have a spoon at the end, which doesn't work, okay? Then you get sick, all right? So you have to stir it up. You have to stir it up. Now, even for uh, we Arcadians, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, right? The Holy Spirit's sitting in there. In, in every one of us who knows Christ, the Holy Spirit is there. So how do we get the Holy Spirit stirred up? And there are many ways that you can do that. I'm going to give you just four, but these four are really at the core of what we need to do. And it's probably nothing new to many of you. But we need to make up our minds that we're going to do it. Number one, because it's a discipline, by the way. Number one, we need to read God's Word. We need to faithfully read God's Word. And, and, and over the years, let me tell you, I have spent a lot of time with a lot of people who faithfully come to church every Sunday, and they will tell me, I just, every time I read the Bible, I just, I, I get maybe one or two verses into it, and, and then I, my mind drifts, and I fall asleep, or what, and I don't understand it, I don't get it, I can't read it, I, I just can't read it, and so I'm not going to read it. Okay, here you go. What you need to do, part of the discipline, is you need to find somebody in your faith community who is pretty good at reading the, uh, the Bible and who knows how to read the Bible and who understands the Bible and say, will you meet with me every week and we just spend an hour together drinking coffee and, and, and reading God's word and, and have you, here you go, disciple me in this? When I first came to Christ when I was 27, I started reading the Bible and that was me. I don't get it. I have, is Ephesians a skin disease? What is this? I don't understand it. Okay? I didn't get it. Okay? And so finally, at one point, I reached out to a guy, and I said, would you meet with me every week and read scripture with me and help me understand it? And he did. For almost three years, he did this. His guy, his, the guy's name was Ed. And that just launched me. And, and the next thing you know, he says, you know that study Bible you have, that introduction thing before each book of the Bible? Why don't you read that? You might know what's going on in the book. Oh, okay, I'll read that. And the next thing you know, I'm reading it, and I'm beginning to understand it. And if I don't understand it, I know where to look and how to access study guides that will help me to understand it. And then you know what? Now, as much as I read, and I love reading, as much as I read, it's my favorite thing to read now. We're doing this midweek Bible study series for five weeks called A League of Their Own, Five Important Women in the Bible. One of the reasons we're doing it is because I love the book of Esther, no matter how many times I've read it. It's just the best story. I love the book of Ruth, no matter how many times I've read it. It's just the best story. But yes, even reading a book like Romans is good and important. So God's word stirs up the Holy Spirit in you. And being with somebody reading God's word with you will stir up the Holy Spirit as well. And that's the second thing. Develop faith-based relationships. If you're just coming to church and then leaving on Sunday and, and the rest of your week, the rest of your life, the other 166 and a half hours of your life, you're not around people of faith, you're not going to be stirring up the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to do that. Find people who have a faith connection with you, and spend some time with them. I'm not saying silo yourself off from the rest of the world, but you need these faith-based relationships because sharing your faith and your God stories and your struggles with another believer stirs up the Holy Spirit in you. The third thing is to serve. It's to serve. When God calls you to serve others, and by the way, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, he has called you to serve. When God calls you to serve, one of the reasons he calls you to serve is because serving stirs up the Holy Spirit in you. It works. And by the way, you begin to develop faith-based relationships because you're with other people of faith. And occasionally, they might even break out the Word of God and read it with you. And then the fourth thing is to fast. Fast. Now, here you go. Some people are like, fast? Mm, no, not going to do that. Listen, fasting is a spiritual discipline that doesn't have to be food. Not everybody fasts on, on food. Now, I will tell you that I, just, I, I found out a couple weeks ago, I have a really good friend in, in his little faith community. They decided they were going to go on a, what they called a 40-day water fast. Now, that doesn't mean they were fasting from water. Okay, I wanted clarification. So, you, so what? You didn't drink water for 40 days. Big deal. Okay, and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We only were going to drink water. Notice, we only were going to drink water for 40 days. 
Okay, you don't have to do food. And by the way, I'm not recommending a 40-day water fast either. You need a physician and a psychiatrist, I think, in the midst of that. Okay, I know Jesus did it. Okay, he's God for crying out loud. What would Jesus do? I don't know. He's God. But what would he have me do may be different than what Jesus would do. Important distinction, okay? By the way, they did try it. Uh, One guy made it five days. That was the longest he made it, and he passed out on the fifth day. He decided, nah, I think I'm done. Okay, so it doesn't have to be food. My favorite fast is to fast from screens, from screens. So if you email me and I don't email you right back, maybe I'm uh, I'm in a spiritual discipline, so don't bug me, okay? (laughs) All right, I'm, I'm fasting from screens in that moment. So fasting is a discipline of refraining from something that you're used to having all the time in order to redirect your affections toward God. I can't have that right now. I'm going to focus on God. It's a spiritual discipline. So here you go. Read God's word. Get into faith-based relationships. Serve and fast. That's a good start. So let's start stirring. Okay? Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in Paul nearly 2,100 years ago to record these words, inspire him to write these words, words that we can look at now and be encouraged and inspired and assured of even right now. God, we thank you for that. I just pray that you would give us the strength, help us to stir up the Holy Spirit in us, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to our time of uh, response and reflection. Uh, several things we do during this time. We're going to sing a couple of songs. Uh, we're going to, uh, this is a time if you, if, you've, uh, if you don't give online, if you bring your, uh, your tithe and your offering, you can give in the box, uh, the, the little giving boxes in the back. You can do that there. And we sing together. That's an important part. Uh, but we also take the Lord's Supper together, if our, if our communion servers would please uh, come forward. One other thing you can do during this time is we'll have uh, people standing in the wings, uh, elders, deacons, uh, staff people who can pray with you or answer questions if you like during this time uh, as well. Uh, but we do come to the Lord's table here. This is a sacrament. Uh, this is something that Jesus put together on the night that he was betrayed. And when we come to the table, we take the bread, which is, he said, is, is uh, uh, his body, and it's been given for us. He was going to the cross, broken. And then we also just dip that bread into the wine or the juice. That's the cup of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when we come, if you are a follower of Christ and you come and you take communion, remember that you are confessing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But come celebrating that you have a Savior, that you are redeemed, and that you're Hope and your security for the rest of all time is secure in him. Let's do that now.
so much for being here and worshiping with us and now may the Lord bless you and keep you and may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you and may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore God bless you all go and live all of life all for Jesus we'll see you next week